How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Gretchen Weber of KQED's Climate Watch. Roger Pelkey Jr. is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's also a senior fellow of the Breakthrough Institute. In his recent book, The Climate Fix, What Scientists and Politicians Won't Tell You About Global Warming, Pelkey outlines his views on what's wrong with the climate debate, why finding a solution is so difficult, and what should be done to get the discussion and the action on the right track. Please welcome Roger Pelkey. So, Roger, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Um, usually we just dive right in. So I'd like to ask you, what actually is wrong with the climate debate today? In your book, you talk about politiza- the politicization, <laughs> politicization of the issue, but you also talk about um, confusion about definitions and confusion about carbon policy versus climate policy. So if you wouldn't mind starting out telling us, what's the debate we're having and what's the debate we should be having? Yeah, to, to answer this question, it's probably worth going back to the beginning. Um, And it's been almost 50 years, depending on how you count, 50 years, certainly 40 years, since scientists first began warning that that humans are are influencing the climate system in a way that could lead to negative impacts, perhaps profound negative impacts. Um, That role of humans in the climate system is is very complex, and it gets more complex the the, the more we learn. Um, But since for many decades, since the 1970s, it's been recognized that carbon dioxide is a primary driver of climate change, human resulting from human uh, emissions from industrial activity. Now, one of the problems with the debate is that despite this recognition that carbon dioxide is accumulating in the atmosphere, uh, perhaps leading to potentially uh, uh, negative outcomes, it keeps rising. And uh, during the time period since uh, the late 1990s when the world became much more serious about the issue, uh, the pace of increase, aside from the economic slowdown, has accelerated. So in a very real sense, if we are concerned about limiting carbon dioxide, uh, the policy debate is moving us in the wrong direction. It's becoming more and more intense, but action isn't actually occurring. Now, there's a bigger, broader issue of climate change. Um, carbon dioxide is a subset of that issue, but climate changes for reasons beyond carbon dioxide and because of natural variability. We see around the world uh, the impacts of climate on societies, whether it's measured by Uh, the dollars or the number of people affected um, are also growing in an absolute sense. So that means that we have uh, issues associated with uh, improving our resilience, say, to climate extremes, uh, natural disasters. Um, It's impossible to deal with all of these issues, the carbon dioxide, other human forcings, uh, climate extremes and vulnerability under a single umbrella. So in the book, I make the case that Uh, Climate change is really important, and it encompasses a lot of things, but it's really important to to separate it out into manageable issues. They may not even be manageable, but one important issue is carbon policy. And you talk a lot about the difference, maybe perhaps sometimes in policy circles, the conflict between adaptation policies and mitigation policies. Can you talk a little about that conflict? Yeah, mitigation policies, that's that's a term that refers uh, primarily to uh, the stabilization of carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Um, Some mitigation policies include other greenhouse gases like methane, for example. Uh, Adaptation refers to those policies that try to make us more resilient, more robust to to climate extremes. In the climate debate uh, since the 1980s, there was what I would call a false trade-off between these, that the idea was that if you supported adaptation to climate, you were against mitigation. Um, and the reality is that they're not opposed at all. They operate on very different timescales. Uh, if we are to take action on, on carbon dioxide, uh, the benefits of that in a climate sense uh, won't be realized for many decades. It's not an instantaneous feedback. On the other hand, if we are to make people more resilient to, say, floods and hurricanes, uh, the benefits occur when the next storm or, or the next flood occurs. Um, So they're complementary policies, and they should be pursued at exactly the same time. Um, Improving adaptation doesn't subtract from mitigation, and vice versa. Um, So in the book, I argue that these really should be decoupled. Um, And I'll give you an example of of how they can create problems in in the policy sense. 
um, the climate convention that the international community uh, is negotiating um, combines both adaptation and mitigation. And what it says is that for countries to receive adaptation funding under the climate convention, they have to be able to prove that the climate events or climate impacts they're experiencing um, were due to human-caused climate change. And if you are in, say, Pakistan or India and you've suffered a flood or a, a typhoon, uh, you're not interested in the exact causation. Your people need help and you need to, to uh, rebuild uh, resilience uh, in the aftermath of disaster. Um, so in a, in a real sense, this, this definition that they have to show causality um, has been an obstacle to freeing up funds. And my argument is that we should just separate out adaptation, make it comprehensive to all sources of, of climate disruption, um, whether human-caused or not, and deal with the mitigation, the carbon dioxide uh, issue, on its own terms. Well, I, I, th I think every scientist I've heard speak has said you can't attribute a specific event to human-caused climate change. So that right there seems like a non-starter if you have to prove causality. That's right, and it shows how the, uh, the political definition of climate change, in a very real sense, has deviated from what most scientists would say. Um, if you've experienced an extreme event in a developing country, um, of course you're going to say, well, we think this is related to greenhouse gas emissions because that's a necessary statement to make to free up funding in the international process. At the same time, if scientists are being very cautious and accurately reflecting the science and saying, well, no one event can be attributed, all of a sudden we've set the stage for a politicization of the science because money hinges on how that argument comes out. Interesting, and not to get too technical for too long, but you do also in your book talk about the, the different definitions between what the UN is using and what the IPCC uses. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a remarkable but unknown, little-known fact uh, that, that the climate science community, so those that are represented by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, um, define climate change as a change in climate irrespective of cause that occurs over a period of 30 to 50 years. So it includes human-caused climate change, but it's much broader, recognizing that there's a lot of sources of change on planet Earth. Remarkably, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the political instrument, has a very different definition of climate change. Its definition of climate change uh, are only those changes that result from a human-caused alteration in the uh, chemistry of the atmosphere. So at once, that's a very narrow definition, and this is what leads to that need to prove causality uh, for adaptation funding. Uh, but the fact that the science community and the political community define climate change differently um, should give us an indication that there's something, something not quite right in the policy framework. Um, and when people use the term climate change in ordinary discourse, um, so a lot of times people use it only to refer to the greenhouse gas uh, motivated changes in the climate system, and other times they use it more generally. And so there's a real lack of precision, um, which might be okay in ordinary dialogue, but once you get into... Um, international treaties, it becomes highly problematic. Mm -hmm. Perhaps related to this, um, you've criticized climate scientists at times for being alarmist and for sort of conjuring fear um, as a way to motivate political action. But um, as we all know, sometimes politicians don't have time for the nuances, and the media certainly doesn't a lot of the time. They're sort of demanding certainty. What's a scientist to do? Yeah, it's important, I think, for experts. And, it, and to me, um, it doesn't matter if their expertise is in um, you know, Middle East politics or climate science or it's your doctor, um, to recognize they have a really special role in our society. Um, I have no real issues with politicians or even advocacy groups who go out and try to stretch the science or, or, or to push uh, knowledge as far as they can in trying to make the best case um, for the course of action that they recommend. That's just politics. That's, that's advocacy at work. Um, but there are people in our society that we look to to play it straight. Um, that might be intelligence agencies. Um, it might be government advisory bodies. Um, but it also, by and large, is, is the public scientific community that we expect uh, is going to represent knowledge um, and fairly and not exaggerate, not um, push things too far. And this is on all sides of the debate. What's at stake is that if people lose um, some sense of, of legitimacy in these advisory bodies, um, then we're going to be doing without expert knowledge because expert knowledge then just becomes that knowledge which you think you can pick to best make your political case. 
and we've substituted politics for science in a very real sense. So organizations like the IPCC, um, I have been very critical of uh, because uh, at times it's gone beyond its remit, which is to faithfully summarize the state of the science. Um, the, the, the case for action on climate change, I think, is strong enough such that uh, the scientific community can play it straight and doesn't have to exaggerate or, or go beyond um, what the science can hold. So if the case is strong enough, why have so many felt the need to maybe go beyond? Yeah, well, there's, there's a big frustration that a lot of people have, going back to my earlier comments, that um, despite concern about the problem, we're moving in the wrong direction. And there is this sense among many people that if only uh, the level of concern or the intensity of uh, people's uh, feelings about climate change were ratcheted up high enough, um, then that would motivate a response. And it turns out, if you look at opinion polls, um, and I summarize uh, a number of them in my book, uh, over the last 20 years, public opinion on climate change has been very strong, uh, both in support of, of uh, the overwhelming scientific consensus uh, and also in support of action. Um, it goes up and down with events. In a cold winter, it'll go down, and uh, you know, hot summer, it goes up. But it's been very stable over time. Um, in the book, I compare public opinion on climate change to public opinion on other issues. And if you take a look at other issues, um, the public opinion on climate change is right in the middle of, um, of historical public opinion for topics that Congress acted on. So there's nothing inherent about public opinion that's holding back policy action. Um, the argument I make is that we suffer a deficit of good policies. Um, that's what's holding us back. The, the problem isn't with the people. Uh, the problem is with uh, people like me, policy wonks and uh, policy experts who have brought into the political process a series of policy proposals that are uh, inherently flawed, that they're not going to work. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, public policymaking is really difficult. Um, where I see the main problem in the climate debate is a, a, an overwhelming unwillingness to let go of those bad policy proposals. Um, how many times does cap-and-trade have to get voted down in the Senate uh, before we say, well, maybe that's not going to work? How many times does the international process have to end in no progress or even spectacular failure, such as at Can uh, Copenhagen last year, um, before we say, all right, let's try something else? Um, you see this in, in many areas of policy, um, whether it was uh, health care or fighting wars, uh, one thing that, that wise policy does is that it adapts to circumstances. Um, you don't just continue to try to apply the same failed policies that didn't work before. You evolve policies and you try something new. The, the climate debate has been unique because of its um, almost impermeability to uh, uh, new ideas, new policy approaches. It seems like so much of the effort of those who are um, advocates for action goes to trying to convince the people who are not advocates for action. And you're saying that's not where the fight should be. Well, it, 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 it depends on, on what the, the material is you're trying to convince your opponents with. And a lot of the effort has been trying to convince people of a particular view of the science. Um, and as I said, I, I think that the public opinion on science has been stable enough that you can continue to fight these battles, but it's not going to move the needle very much. 70% of the American public thinks that uh, climate change is real and deserves action. That's a pretty strong majority of people. There are, of course, partisan splits, which have become more pronounced as the issue has become more of a partisan issue. Um, but, but convincing people, more people, that the science says X, Y, or Z is not going to lead to, uh, to greater support for action. Um, again, if the right policies were in place, um, my sense is that uh, the public would, would, would support them. And it, it's not a failure of the, of the public not knowing enough or not knowing the right things. It's that the options that the political process has uh, simply can't work. Well, I want to talk about your ideas for the policies, um, but just before we move on, I wanted to ask one more thing about the debate with the scientists and their role in the debate. Um, and then it seems that sometimes maybe they're at a disadvantage uh, because we hold them to a different standard than maybe we do the other side. In your book, you talk about it as a David and Goliath kind of uh, relationship. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's difficult because um, if you say that you want to provide 
the best scientific information possible to the policy community. Um, you're then bound by different standards than, say, someone in an advocacy group who says, well, I'm just going to cherry pick that science or that information that best supports my case. Um, and this is why we want some element of the scientific community to step back from the most intense aspect of the political debate. Um, the, the analogy I used this in a previous book that uh, we should have for, for scientific advice might be something like uh, the CIA. We want the CIA to give the government the best information possible on threats and potential options. We don't want uh, intelligence officers in the CIA trying to argue for what country we should invade next. Um, we, there's a division of responsibility between those who offer advice and those who offer advocacy. Uh, I, if scientists are open and clear about becoming advocates, I think that's great. Um, where we get into trouble is when the scientific community represents itself as providing good faith advice and behind the scenes is, is engaged in a little bit of advocacy. So if you take a scientist like uh, Jim Hansen, for example, I have a lot of respect f uh, for, for Dr. Hansen. I think his open advocacy is, is, is great. It's part of a healthy democratic system. Uh, on the other hand, if you take a look at the IPCC and some of uh, the problems that have been found in that over the last year, um, including some of my own research, um, that's a little bit more troubling. More troubling because it's not as straightforward? Because the IPCC has a very different role, and its, its role is to provide advice to policymakers. It's not to convince policymakers to take a particular course of action. So is it possible to quantify at all? Um, do you think that they're all doing this, or is there just a small percentage, or what should the trust level be from your perspective? Well, my sense is that some of the most visible elements of the science community have become wrapped up in the advocacy bottle, a battle over climate change. Um, it's, I mean, I've, I've worked in scientific institutions for the last 20 years, and it, you know, the vast majority of, of climate scientists um, are just doing good work, keeping their heads down. Um, but the, the reality is that the, um, the public perception, policymaker perception of the scientific community is swayed by the most visible elements of that community, um, and particularly the IPCC, which was developed in the political process to provide scientific guidance. We're discussing climate science and policy with Roger Pilkey, professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Gretchen Weber. Uh, you mentioned Jim Hansen. He was here last night talking about his vision. Um, what about a carbon tax? He says what we need to do is make fossil fuels more expensive um, and that that will spur innovation because the market will take care of it. Um, he also says in order for that to work, all the money from the tax should go back to the people to offset any sort of higher energy costs they might have to endure. You, in your book, advocate some form of carbon tax, but it's very different. Can you yeah, talk about that? Yeah, there's a big difference. In, in the conventional view of climate policy, um, particularly focused on carbon dioxide, has been that we need to make fossil fuels more expensive. And if you make fossil fuel more expensive, that's going to create a, an economic signal to people that will lead to innovation, changing their behavior, um, a preference for low-carbon energy. The problem with that approach is that it fails the real-world test, and that is if you make energy more expensive, people will feel that pinch. They will feel it, but their reaction won't be to simply prefer carbon-free energy. Their reaction will be to vote somebody else into office who's going to guarantee them lower-priced energy. Um, there's, there's a very telling example of, of these dynamics which occurred in India over the past uh, half year. Um, one set of policies India proposed was to lift their um, subsidies for fossil fuels, just a small part of this. They have, they have very big subsidies for, uh, uh, for gasoline, for kerosene, for diesel. Um, they proposed lifting some of those subsidies, which was the equivalent of about a $30 a ton carbon tax. Um, there were riots. There were protests. Um, this was in June that they proposed it. And by August, policymakers stepped back and said, whoa, we're not going to raise your price of, of fuel. Um, at the same time, virtually the same time, uh, India uh, put a price, a tax on coal. And the tax was the equivalent of 35 cents a ton carbon dioxide tax. No protests. Nobody Nobody complained. Um, and the proceeds of that tax are used to uh, fund clean energy innovation. So this is a real-world example that says that, that while people are willing around the world to accept some 
higher price on energy, that willingness has its limits. Um, and I'm sure people here have their limits too. If I said you could have a, a, an effective carbon policy for $1 a year, most people would raise their hand. If I said, well, I'm sorry, it's going to cost a million dollars a year, there'd be far fewer people who would raise their hand. And so there's some line that connects those two that suggests that um, people have their willingness. Maybe it's a, a matter of ability to pay. Um, maybe it's because they have other priorities. But the, the reality is that efforts to put a high price on carbon, uh, which has been the centerpiece of climate policy globally um, and nationally for you know, perhaps as long as the last 20 years, have, have systematically and continuously failed. So the alternative approach um, instead of trying to make uh, fossil fuels more expensive, would be to try to make their competitors cheaper. So you're still trying to alter that, that balance, um, but instead of, of trying to overcome the, the hurdle of getting people to be willing to pay more, um, you work in the interest that people already have, which is they want low-priced energy. Um, and everyone agrees in the climate policy debate that innovation is key. No one doubts that. Um, where there's a big debate is over how you stimulate that innovation. And uh, the approach that I recommend in the book, and which I think is becoming a new consensus in climate policy, is a much more direct approach to stimulating innovation is better than trying to uh, manipulate price signals um, through complex legislation like cap and trade, which so far hasn't worked. Just for a moment to going back to um, Jim Hansen's plan, though, what about you know, people don't want to bear high energy costs, but what if they did get the money back from the tax? That couldn't work? Well, there's, there's a number of problems with that, but, I mean, th think of it in the abstract. If I, if I tell you all of a sudden um, you're going to have to pay $1,000 a month in, in your electricity bill, and then at the same time I say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you a $1,000 check every month, um, there's going to be little incentive for you to change your behavior. Now, at the margins, of course, there will be some incentive there. Uh, but the reality is that if you're returning most of the money through a carbon tax to people that, that pay it, you're, you're, you'll move money around and you'll, you'll change things around. But it's not going to be a tool to uh, stimulate innovation. Um, it, it actually skips over innovation because you're not investing anymore. So at best, it can only have a marginal effect. Um, and the larger that you propose the tax, um, the more likely it is to generate political opposition. So I don't see it at all as, as a feasible alternative to other um, forms of, of, of cap and trade. Bear with me for one yep. second. So the, the, the difference would be kind of negligible for the individuals. They would get their $1,000 check. They would pay their $1,000 right. energy bill. But wouldn't the tax still be on the energy producer slash supplier, and therefore they might be encouraged to cut carbon? They might, but they might just pass, pass that on to their consumer. So, um, again, it, it, it's, it's a very difficult argument to sell that you're saying we want to price fossil fuels higher in order to stimulate innovation, and at the same time, we want to adopt policies that limit the, the felt impact of that price increase. Um, you have two policy instruments working in exactly the opposite direction. Um, in economic theory, if you put a high price on carbon dioxide, uh, it will probably lead to innovation. I, I don't think there's any question about that. The problem isn't with economic theory, it's with political reality. Um, and this, this sort of a policy is exactly the problem with uh, cap and trade and other approaches. On the one hand, to succeed, you need a high price on energy. And on the other hand, to sell it, you have to have all these, these favors and buy-offs and um, back doors and escape clauses from that high price. If you take a look at the most recent versions of cap and trade in the U.S. Congress, um, the, the reason that, the, the, for example, the Waxman-Markey bill was a, a thousand pages um, was that it had to have a whole bunch of giveaways to, um, to limit the impact of the bill itself, the primary purpose. So um, we can keep discussing um, variations on this theme, but my view is um, this debate, at least politically, has been settled. It's, it's over. Um, putting a cap on carbon and then trying to have a high price um, has not worked nationally and it's not working internationally. So um, coming up with the, you know, the, the, the tenth iteration of, of you know, a slightly different version of this 
um, just to me doesn't seem like it's going to make much sense. This, is, this is, gets back to what I call the, the impermeability of the, the policy debate to new ideas. Um, rather than trying you know, you know, you know, French vanilla version of vanilla cap and trade, maybe we should try chocolate or strawberry or, or something with more prospects for success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have here in your, in your book you call hard cap on emissions is a fantasy, which is interesting for us here in California because even though cap and trade may be dead, stalled on the national or international level, California, as of right now, we're still going forward with our AB32 and the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, and, and part of that is a cap and trade system, either regionally or there's been some talk about going it alone if we need to. Um, what, what do you think about that? Is that just completely misguided and doomed? Well, if, if the goal of um, cap and trade is really to have a cap on emissions, then for that to work, you need off-the-shelf, so to speak, technological solutions that allow you to reduce those emissions according to some schedule. And uh, the problem with uh, ha- trying to put a cap on emissions and why I call it impossible is that we just don't have those technologies right now. Um, we don't have the technologies of energy production um, available at scale, whether solar or wind or nuclear power or something else, um, or technologies of energy uh, consumption, so automobile, electric cars, for instance, or, or other um, sorts of technologies. If you, if you look at the relationship between economic growth and carbon dioxide emissions, uh, it's, it's not exactly one-to-one, but it's really close. This is why uh, carbon dioxide is not a conventional traditional pollution problem. Um, if it were acid rain or chlorofluorocarbons that led to ozone depletion, you would just take one technological solution and, and substitute it for another. Um, if you don't have the technologies, if the purpose is to stimulate innovation, um, you're banking on that innovation leading to getting the technologies when you need them on the schedule to meet the cap. Uh, the problem is where this has been tried, and most notably in Europe, uh, you cannot compel technological innovation on that sort of a schedule. If you don't have the technologies off the shelf to substitute, the only way you can meet those emission reduction schedules is to limit or constrict economic growth. That is a non-starter. So you see, for example, um, in Europe, uh, efforts to circumvent the cap um, through creative accounting using things like offsets. In Europe, for example, there's a program called the Clean Development Mechanism, which allows companies to invest outside of Europe, primarily in developing countries, um, and claim credits underneath the European uh, cap-and-trade system. Well, to give an example of of how this creates perverse incentives, um, there are companies in India and China that produce refrigerants. And one of the byproducts, one of the waste products of this uh, chemical production is a, a very powerful greenhouse gas called HFC-23. It's 19,200 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So you can get a lot of carbon credits for destroying it. And it turns out that for these companies in India and China, they were receiving more money for producing this waste product and destroying it, selling the credits to Europe, than their original business in selling refrigerants. So they became uh, carbon offset companies with a refrigerant business on the side. Uh, And they started making more of this waste product. Um, And what that did is it served uh, the need of European companies to to be able to evade the cap, and um, it transferred money from Europe to Asia, and those those companies very much liked that. Um, If you take a look at the, the rate of decarbonization of the European economy, so this is the amount of carbon dioxide per unit of economic activity. If you look at that rate before Kyoto and after Kyoto, there's been no change. So arguably, the um, cap-and-trade program in Europe has, maybe has done some things, moved some money around, and, and at the margin had some changes. But overall, it, it hasn't done much to alter business as usual. California going forward, whatever the policy is that's adopted going forward, um, I can assure you that if the policy starts to bite, uh, politicians will find a way to evade that bite, either through creative accounting in the legislation um, or by simply revisiting it to start with. It's very easy to make promises in advance of uh, implementation. Um, It's very hard for politicians to look their constituents in the face and say, you have to accept this economic discomfort 
because we've imposed this policy. It, it just doesn't work that way. Um, well, in fact, right now, one more California question. Yeah. Um, we have Proposition 23 on the ballot coming up, and there's a lot of money going into that campaign on both sides. Um, and it's pretty split. The money on one side is oil companies, a lot of it from out of state, and the money on the other side, much more money, is a lot of it's coming from Silicon Valley. So it seems like in this situation, the innovators are on the, the innovators are on the side of um, cap and trade. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, well, I, I, to some degree, the, the California debate has, has transcended policy at this point, and it's very political. Um, and it's, it's now uh, the California bill is very much a... Um, a political football in the, in the bigger, broader climate debate. It became a lot like the Waxman-Markey debate. Um, the question that I think is important for people to, to ask outside the politics, whatever happens in the election, after the election, is, is this policy likely to, to, to deliver the outcomes that it promises, particularly if you're focused on um, a, an accelerated decarbonization of the economy? And my thinking is that um, even if California goes forward with this cap-and-trade program, uh, there are still going to be many more steps that are needed to actually achieve that decarbonization. So I see the debate very much as uh, symbolic. There will be winners and losers, which is generating a lot of the interest on either side. Um, but evidence from other efforts to implement this sort of policy suggests that um, it is not, uh, the, the election is not going to be a victory for reducing emissions. It's going to be a victory in an election. A lot of policy still has to happen afterwards. We're discussing climate science and policy with Roger Pelkey, professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Gretchen Weber. So um, to technology, we don't have what we need. There is an assumption, as you say in your book, that we all think, or that there's this assumption out there that we have all the technology we need, we just need to use it. You say that's not the case. What do we need? Yeah, well, the first thing that I ask people to do in the book is, is to do the, the mathematics of emission reduction. Um, it, it, one of the, the problems I see in the climate debate is that there are so many appeals to authority, that this expert says this, that expert says that, and most people who come to the debate are, um, are, are asked to trust somebody. And um, I, in my book, I, I, I think I explicitly say this, you know, don't trust me. Do the math yourself. And there's information out there that enables people to actually do the math of emissions reduction. Um, I go through a number of case studies in the book of what it would take for different countries uh, around the world to meet their emissions reductions targets. And just to give you an example, uh, for the United States to meet uh, its 17% emissions reduction goal by 2020, this is the goal that was put forward by the Obama administration um, at the Copenhagen Climate Conference last year. It was also talked about in the cap-and-trade legislation. The United States uh, would need about 342 nuclear power plants worth of carbon-free energy in the next, now, nine years. Uh, so it's numbers like this that lead me to the conclusion that we don't have the technology. Uh, the United States is going to be hard-pressed to build one or two nuclear power plants by 2020, uh, much less 342 nuclear power plants worth of carbon-free energy. Uh, so there's an assumption that underlies uh, a lot of the climate debate, and it has been fed, um, I think, by um, wishful thinking on the parts of some advocates that, that we, we do have the technology. It's just a matter of unplugging that coal plant and plugging in a set of uh, wind turbines or solar panels, and that's simply not the case. Um, and so part of the, what I would say is the wisdom of of climate policy ought to be uh, an ability to say, look, we don't have all the answers right now. Uh, and this, we're able to do this, for example, in the area of health. So if uh, you say, well, we need a cure for cancer, um, it, it wouldn't be wise policy to say, yeah, we have that cure. It's, it's, uh, it's over in this research lab, if we really didn't. And on energy policy, I think the, the smart thing to do is to say, look, we don't have the ability to meet these aggressive targets on a very short time scale, we better get to business in trying to accelerate uh, energy innovation. It's not just research, it's not just development, it's deployment, um, it's testing, it's prototyping, it's um, the government getting involved in a big way, particularly the Department of Defense, in uh, pushing for alternative technologies um, and pushing for this in the international community as well. 
One of the things that's really important to recognize, but can be difficult to see from our energy-rich perspective in the United States, is the world is going to need vastly more energy going forward, vastly more energy. There are 1.5 billion people right now who have no access to electricity. And going forward, they're going to demand access, and as a matter of human dignity, they should have access. Um, if that access is going to be provided, uh, the energy consumption around the world is going to skyrocket. So we should be asking questions such as, how are we going to provide that energy? Um, fossil fuels, you know, set aside your climate concerns, fossil fuels alone probably can't do that without big increases in cost. So it's, it's my view that it's in everyone's interest um, to be accelerating the innovation process with respect to, to energy, which means diversification, focus more on non-fossil fuel sources. Um, but if our debate is, is clouded by this illusion that we have the technology to substitute out for fossil fuels, um, it's no wonder that we've been stuck in a, in a gridlock situation. And the result is we're not actually accelerating innovation at this point. I believe in your book you're calling for a larger federal investment in innovation. How would that work? Yeah, well, it, you can look at this, this issue from a number of perspectives. You can look at it from the national perspective um, or an international perspective. And it's in uh, many nations, not just the United States, interest to um, accelerate innovation in energy technology. Because if you think about what's happening in China, what's happening in India, elsewhere around the world, um, with this explosion in, in energy consumption, someone is going to be providing those technologies, companies, and some companies are going to be actually installing those technologies. With all of the talk and concern about jobs in the United States, um, it is remarkable to me that, that innovation, particularly in energy, hasn't been more at the center of these debates. Um, the United States uh, could be a leader, uh, but the United States could very well be a laggard in that competition. Um, if you take a look at what Germany's done in recent months, um, Germany has proposed to extend the life of its nuclear power plants. They have 17 nuclear power plants. Uh, if they extend the life of these nuclear power plants, they are going to get a financial windfall. They won't have to build new power plants, and they're going to extend a fuel rod tax. This is going to generate $40 billion, um, which they're going to invest in clean energy innovation. Why do they want to do this? Well, one reason is that nuclear power is very contested in Germany. They're going to want to get off of nuclear, and they want to get off fossil fuels as well. And they're proposing to be fossil fuel-free by 2050. And that sort of aspirational goal makes a lot of sense to me. Germany is also uh, the second largest exporter uh, worldwide, well-known for their high-tech, um, excellent engineering. Um, you can be sure that Germany wants to be uh, in the forefront of building infrastructure in China, India, eventually Africa. Um, and so they see this as a way to um, meet their domestic economic objectives, but also meet their larger uh, climate policy, nuclear policy objectives as well. This sort of a discussion has yet to take place in the United States, but uh, by all indications, that's the direction we're going. The, the, the focus on innovation is becoming more and more a part of the discussion of climate policy, and that's a good thing. Um, innovation, of course, investing in innovation costs money, and I know you recommend a, a, a low carbon tax, but I also can imagine in this economic climate, and given how politicized the issue is, is politicians might be reticent to, to say, therefore, anything that someone could classify as a gas tax or an energy tax. Do you really think this could, could work right now? Yeah, well, if... if, if we were recommending any policy of any sort at this moment in Washington, I'd say the odds of it passing are probably very low. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that the politics of the issue at this moment in time are such that nothing's going to happen in the immediate short term. Uh, that said, it's important to recognize that worldwide, um, the direct cost of securing energy is something like 5 to 10 percent of global GDP. That's something like $5 trillion. It's an enormous part of the global economy. What that means is that a very, very small tax or levy on energy um, can generate an enormous amount of money. Uh, it would be wise um, for politicians to think about how we're going to provide the energy needed to the future and to make a case that um, to build tomorrow's energy infrastructure, tomorrow's technology, we use today's energy 
uh, to do that. So imagine that a, just a small uh, $5 per barrel surcharge tax, if you'd like, levy um, on oil, which is about $80, $85 right now, uh, would only be a few pennies per gallon at the gas pump, um, would generate something like $100 billion a year in innovation, or that money that could be used for innovation. Uh, similarly, a $5 a ton carbon tax, which is much lower than, than has been called for, also would lead to a few pennies increase uh, per gallon on the price of gas, generates a similar amount of money. So there are ways, I think, to finance um, this investment going forward. Um, at some point, governments around the world are going to have to address the tax issue just because of the, the deficit situation. When they do come around to that point, I doubt it's going to be this year, but maybe it'll be next year, maybe the year after, that would be an appropriate time to say, look, if we're going to be raising the tax burden to dig our uh, governments out of their debt, uh, presumably after the economies of the world get back going, uh, that would be the appropriate time to start talking about building the, the energy infrastructure of tomorrow based on uh, the energy of today. I think we're ready to take some questions now. So if anyone has a question, um, the microphone right there is in the middle. If you could line up behind the microphone. Again, if you could make your questions brief and limit them to one, that would be great. We're discussing climate science and policy with Roger Pelkey, professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Gretchen Weber. Yes. Uh, you mentioned innovation, and as part of the innovation, uh, nuclear power plants, which are not very popular, but the greatest uh, deterrent to innovation in that area is the California moratorium on nuclear power plants, and the fact that the federal government is not insuring nuclear power plants, and in, uh, trying to have a uniform design for such plants so they become much cheaper. Now, how do you address uh, that problem? Yeah. In, in the book, I, I, I call for a, when we talk about energy innovation, I call for a, a stance of a technological agnosticism. And the reason for this is that if we were to give in to any one group's opposition to a particular technology, uh, we would be sitting here in the dark. There would be no energy technology that's acceptable to everyone. So as part of a, a, a large-scale energy innovation portfolio, uh, the negotiation shouldn't be, all right, let's take out my least favorite technology if we take out yours. It should be the opposite. All right, we'll include my favorite, and let's include your favorite as well. Um, if you just do the math of emissions reductions, um, it's very hard to envision a world with stabilized concentrations of carbon dioxide without nuclear power. Um, that said, there are countries around the world, such as China, that are building nuclear power plants as fast as they can because, as we talked about before, they need more energy. So part of the innovation process is not just technological innovation, but it's policy innovation and figuring out how do we ensure, um, how do we get the best possible designs, and so on. Now, if Germany which has a history of opposition to nuclear power, I think much, much stronger than the United States, can agree to extend the life of their nuclear power plants. Um, I think it's within the realm of possibility that California or uh, other places around the world might also. If there is innovation in the technology such that the costs become uh, even more competitive uh, with uh, coal, I think you'll see... Uh, nuclear power becoming much more favored. I just read in the newspaper this morning that uh, Venezuela has contracted with Russia to build a new nuclear power plant in Venezuela. Um, Venezuela is not going to come to the United States for that, but uh, nuclear uh, is going to be among those options that uh, will be discussed. Next question. Uh, yes. Uh, I heard Jim Hansen speak yesterday, actually the Chabot Science Center, not in San Francisco, but he brought up, he'd kind of given up on governments and the churches, and he's looking for legal recourse. You want to comment on that? Well, let me, legal recourse in what sense? To basically to bring suit that certain laws are not uh, being uh, observed that are perhaps more general in scope, my understanding. 
Yeah, th there's been a lot of talk about how do you compel uh, the world to, to reduce its emissions, to decarbonize. And I guess I'm going to go back to the, the same argument, that if the technologies aren't there, uh, the world is not going to accept a, a willing contraction of its economy, which is what you would have to do uh, in order to reach those emissions limits. Uh, China and India have already said in the international negotiations that if it, there's a trade-off to be made between development and carbon dioxide, uh, they're going to come out in favor of development. So I don't think that the Chinese government's going to fall under the jurisdiction of U.S. courts or even international courts. Um, so I see the legal approach as having very little possibility for uh, policy success, probably even less than cap and trade, if, if that circumstance can be imagined. Um, at some point, we're going to have to just realize that if we want to accelerate innovation, all of these complex paths through the legal system, through the legislative system, are going to be less preferable than keeping our eye on the ball and just going right there and focusing on innovation. Next question. Uh, in terms of encouraging uh, market-type solutions, in part to the question of, I've heard that one uh, impediment to this occurring is the fact that uh, private enterprises can't count on a high price of oil making their investments in alternative energy profitable. Uh, if the oil producers see this coming on, suddenly they pump, the price drops, and the incentive isn't there anymore. Uh, is this a real, uh, is this a legitimate impediment? And if so, couldn't there be some sort of large enough hedging mechanism put into place that would insulate the companies from these kinds of fluctuations that would sort of cut their legs off at the critical point? Yeah, th this is a great, great point, and it's a valid point. Um, one thing to recognize is that around the world right now, every year, uh, governments subsidize fossil fuels uh, to the tune of $557 billion. Enormous subsidies already go to, to fossil fuels. Um, one of the arguments for direct government uh, investment in innovation is that it is not limited by these market forces. That if OPEC decides to you know, turn up the, the spigot, forcing the price of oil down, uh, innovation from government sources can continue. Uh, to the extent that that innovation is successful, you're driving down the cost of alternatives to fossil fuels, it makes that strategy much more difficult. Now, let me say, there is something that's called the green paradox. Let's say that we are fantastically successful in developing low-cost alternative sources of energy and uh, technologies for consumption. Um, if we do that, we're going to reduce demand for fossil fuels. What happens if you reduce demand for fossil fuels to the price? The price goes down. So there's this perverse incentive that uh, my view is that at some point we would have to decide to leave fossil fuels in the ground. There would have to be a regulatory approach. Um, it is also my view that such a regulatory approach will be far, far easier if there are alternatives available at a reasonable cost. So that's, that's near the end. That's, that's near the end game situation. What I'm much more concerned about is how we take the first steps. How do we accelerate that innovation process? Um, if we are so lucky as to be driving down the cost of fossil fuels, I, I think then that would be a next phase that we could deal with. Next question. Uh, well, Professor, speaking of first steps and innovation, I think we all know how big the Defense Department's budget is and how much innovation comes uh, out of that area. And you mentioned it earlier. So I'm just wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit more about what they're doing. I mean, I know the Navy made a very serious energy commitment last week or the beginning of this week. Talk about what they could be doing, what they are doing now to push that innovation. Yeah, and when I say innovation, um, I'm glad you raised this point. I, I have a model in my mind that's much more like the Department of Defense approach to innovation than, say, the National Science Foundation. Uh, the, the Department of Defense invests something like $100 billion a year in innovation. And whatever you think about military R&D, it's undeniable that we can blow things up much better today than we could 70 years ago. Um, another model that I use is, is health um, biotechnology. We, the government invests about $30 billion a year in uh, medical research. Um, these are the orders of magnitude that are required. And if you look at, at, at both of these efforts, they are much less focused on pure research, blue sky research, than they are on development, deployment, field testing. Um, 
procurement in the case of the military. The military can, can buy down the cost of technologies. Um, and that we have not ever um, applied anything resembling this approach to energy. And it is remarkable because energy is, as I said, about 10% of, of global GDP. So if we are to, to try to focus more attention on innovation, it's not let's raise a few billion dollars and give it to the science agencies. I don't think that would do it. It would be let's think about how we can transform this area by adopting models that have worked in other sectors that force innovation to occur. Um, and uh, for better or worse, the Department of Defense is probably the best model out there for this large-scale innovation process. You said uh, 30 billion to health. In your book, you say something like, is it 4 billion to energy right now? The the, the uh, U.S. going to spend something like 4 billion invested in, in energy innovation, um, and a lot of that goes to fossil fuels. So um, it is orders of magnitude, really, away from where I would say it needs to be if we're going to appreciably accelerate accelerate the decarbonization of our economy. Next question. To my knowledge, the uh, technology does exist. We already have solar. We already have wind. We have high-speed rail. It's just a matter of policy wonks like yourself uh, getting, getting it out there and uh, getting it implemented. There's a new uh, solar plant going online that will, in, in, the de in the desert that will power 750,000 homes. I mean, a number of these power plants, huge power plants, will uh, power enough uh, energy for the entire U.S. We don't need more uh, technology necessarily. We need uh, policy people getting out of their cars, people you know, getting smaller homes and being more efficient. Is that not correct? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you bring this up because this is why it's so important to actually do the math of emissions reductions. Um, earlier this year, I testified before the Colorado State Air Quality Control Commission. And one of the things that I did in that testimony was to provide a sense of the scale of the challenge for Colorado to meet its 20% reduction goal by 2020. And in, in order to meet that target, uh, the state of Colorado would have to deploy something like 14,500 wind turbines, 2.5 megawatt wind turbines, between now and, and 2020. Um, there's a wind farm in Lamar, very impressive, 108 turbines. Um, and so when I say it's the, we don't have the technology, uh, there is no way that I can envision that the state of Colorado is going to be putting in two, three, four of these every day between now and 2020. So in a simple mathematical sense, you could say, yeah, we could build 342 nuclear power plants or 14,000 windmills. But in any practical sense, um, at some point we have to just say that's not going to happen. Um, it would... It would uh, help us to better appreciate the magnitude of the problem if we realize its scale. It's not to say throw your hands up and do nothing, but I'm pretty sure that it's hard to solve policy problems if we don't recognize their scale um, rather than uh, imagining that it's smaller than it actually is. One of the technologies that you're, or one family of technologies you talk about is um, carbon capture, which would kind of work in tandem with, with increasing renewables. Where, where are we with that? Uh, well, to my knowledge, carbon capture and storage doesn't really exist at scale now. So it's not a technology um, that is available that we could plug onto the end of a coal-fired power plant, for instance, or take carbon dioxide from the ambient air. Uh, the reality is that governments around the world are banking on carbon capture and sequestration technologies to be available. Uh, so... My view, not being a technologist, is that we ought to be investing in that technology, prototyping, evaluating it, uh, to see if it's going to work or not. And if it if it's works, then there's another tool in the toolbox. But if we find out that it doesn't, for reasons of storage or capture or cost, then the sooner we find that out, the better. Next question. I had a bright idea. Uh, I don't think the American public really understands what you're talking about. I've wrestled with this a lot. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to take one city in our country and put an additive into all the gas tanks one day, and that uh, additive would turn green or purple or blue, and people could see. See, right now, the gas companies are really smart because you can't see the pollution. And what American, the Americans respond to their senses. Now, if you could see a huge green cloud 
over an entire city every time they got, that the morning they got up, got in their cars, started their cars, and this terribly dense green smoke came out of the exhaust pipes, and they got on their freeways and they couldn't see where they were going, maybe they would understand this is not working, folks. We need to change direction, and that would put a pressure on the whole system. Yeah, you raise a really, really good point uh, having to do with the climate issue more generally, and that is that none of us can experience what it means for the climate to change because climate change, by definition, is a process that occurs over at least 30 to 50 years. And without science, we wouldn't even be aware of the issue of climate change. Uh, and that's why it has been so difficult to formulate policies that are based on asking people to pay some price today for benefits that might be felt over decades and centuries. And one of the core arguments of my book is that we have to design policies so that the benefits and costs are felt much more on the same time frame. Uh, and that means, for climate change, expanding the issue um, to talk about jobs, uh, to talk about pollution on shorter terms, to talk about uh, clean energy development, to talk about energy access in the developing world. These are the sort of policies that I think can align short-term costs with short-term benefits um, in a way that the conventional climate debate cannot. Um, if you expect people to, particularly in India and China, to give up their prospects for development um, because of concerns about long-term climate change, um, it's just not going to happen. We have time for another question. Is there anyone else who'd like to ask one? Well, you said that you don't think that um, much can happen now. What are, what are your thoughts for COP16 and, and Cancun and, and this whole strategy of nations meeting to hammer out a deal? What are your thoughts? Well, earlier this week, um, the uh, so-called basic countries, um, Brazil, South Africa, India, China, um, plus a number of other countries, um, they met to come up with their pre-Cancun negotiating strategy. And it was reported, the centerpiece being they're going to resist any efforts of the rich countries to have them commit to binding targets for emissions reductions. Yesterday, the European Union met to hammer out its negotiating target, and they agreed they want to pursue a follow-on to Kyoto, um, but it is contingent on the developing countries agreeing to committing to a legal framework for emissions reductions. So I look at these two things together, and I say, well, it looks like there's not going to be much that happens in Cancun. And if the experience of the past 15 COPs is any indication, that's what we should expect. Um, one of the frustrations that I have, but I, but I understand it in, in doing policy analysis, is that at some point, feedback from the real world should enter into your considerations of what policies make sense. And after Copenhagen last year, which ended in disarray, it was a disaster, um, I would have thought that pretty much everyone would say, well, it's time for a new approach. Um, and to the extent that people are gearing up to do the same thing again in Cancun, um, it strikes me as a little bit of insanity, which is doing the same behavior and expecting a different outcome. Um, I, I hear occasionally people are talking about, well, let's, let's spin up uh, another effort for cap and trade in the U.S. Congress next year. To me, that's more in, insanity. So at some point, and I think actually, I mean, I am optimistic because I think the discussion is moving in this direction. Um, new options are going to be needed, and a focus on innovation uh, seems to be one that people on the right side of the political spectrum and the left side um, can at least find some common ground on. It's a lot of work to be done to design what might the policy instruments look like, how might they be paid for, how might they be implemented. But the reality is we've invested more than 20 years in the approach that's got us to where we are today. Um, we're only starting talking about the next approach. So I think that uh, going forward, there's, there is a lot of reason for optimism um, on climate policy, on energy policy. Um, we just have to keep pushing it in that direction. A lot of the numbers in your book were pretty scary, though, when you, when you do the, uh, the arithmetic and you talk about what needs to happen. Um, I kind of want to ask, are you really optimistic? <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things I think about being a policy analyst is that you have to be able to go into problems and understand their magnitude without being put off. And I don't know what the analogy is. I tell my students maybe it's a little bit like um, being a doctor that goes into uh, a third world country, a developing country, and you see the scale of the health needs. Um, you're not going to be helped by ignoring that scale. 
what you do is you go in and you say, all right, where can I start making progress? Uh, my students tell me policy analysis isn't for everyone. It's, uh, and it's probably people who work in Washington, D.C. say the same thing. It can be depressing. It can be frustrating. Um, but at the same time, uh, these are really serious problems that are really complicated. Um, we should expect that dealing with them is going to involve a lot of frustration, a lot of false starts, um, a lot of opposition, and, and so on. So um, I am optimistic, but that might just be the, uh, the, one of the career traits of a policy analyst. Otherwise, you'd, <laughs> you'd go do something else. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Our thanks to Roger Pelkey, Professor of Environmental Studies at University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Gretchen Weber of KQED's Climate Watch. Thank you for coming to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank <laughs> you.